Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. and gentlemen, welcome back to another exciting episode of Thriller Insider. Today is June 6, 2020. This is one that I've been meaning to do. I just didn't know how to create it until last night. I was so inspired to look up and really research what is going on behind the scenes when it comes to the Fed right now. So much so that I stayed up last night watching old documentaries of the 2008 and, and 1929 depressions, recessions. And uh, today's episode is called How the Fed Exit Scammed America. That's right. Those are powerful words. I know. I promise you that. This is sticking to the facts. This is reporting the news. This is looking a little closer to the details Everything that I'm showing you today, I have citations for inside the show notes. Everything that we've talked about in the past all leads us here. Today's episode is going to be split up into three acts. I think that's the best way to approach something like this. Because you have to understand where this all came from. Uh, This is something that was built into the creation of the Fed. You know, forced itself to continue this monetary policy that has lasted us over 70 years at this point. Uh, it's, uh, it's quite fascinating. I think a lot of people are going to be surprised and um, you might be taken back. But let's get started. Act one. So Act 1 is mainly about the early 1900s up until mid-1930s. Let's start with the creation of the Fed. Now, if you remember some time ago, maybe about two years ago, we did a thriller podcast on the creature from Jekyll Island. Now, if you haven't heard that episode, I recommend go checking it out. I'll put a link to the show notes. It was a really uh, interesting story, right, to say the least. So let's dive into what the Fed actually is. The Federal Reserve System, often referred to as the Federal Reserve or simply the Fed, is a central bank of the United States. It was created by Congress to provide the nation with a safer, more flexible, more stable monetary and financial system. 
Now, the Federal Reserve Act was created on December 23, 1913, when President Woodrow Wilson signed the Federal Reserve Act into law. Now, if we look at the Federal Reserve's responsibilities today, they fall into four general areas. First, they conduct the nation's monetary policy by influencing money and credit conditions in the economy in pursuit of full employment and stable prices. Second, they supervise and regulate banks and other important financial institutions to ensure the safety and soundness of the nation's banking and financial system to protect the credit's rights of consumers. They do this by maintaining the stability of the financial system and containing systemic risk that may arise in financial markets, providing certain financial services to the United States government, United States financial institutions, and foreign official institutions. And they also play a major role in operating and overseeing the nation's payment systems, aka SWIFT. Upon its creation in 1913, 12 central banks all act as a lender of last resort for their regions. That's how it originally was created. Now, the Federal Reserve Board is above these central banks that act as a regulatory agency. Now, originally, the Federal Reserve Board was only allowed to veto decisions, not make them. This caused paralysis in the original system as they all couldn't agree, further fueling the beginnings of the Great Depression. Now, let's dive into the Great Depression. Most people remember the Great Depression, but probably from the history books. There's an excellent book called uh, Lords of Finance. And um, one of the authors from that book, his name is, I'm pretty sure I'm going to butcher the name, but his name is Laquat Hamed. And he goes into great detail about how World War I had only ended, you know, 10 years after the start of the Great Depression in 1929. But what he what, what he gathers from there really gives us some in-depth um, analysis to why all of Europe back then bankrupted themselves after World War One, uh, and it's mainly because they they finance uh, themselves for World War One just by borrowing. So back then, the, the debt to GDP levels were something like two hundred to three hundred percent. So they paid for it by inflating the debt away. Surprisingly, that's something I tend to know. Uh, the Allies demanded reparations from Germany because they owed the U.S. and the U.S. refused to forgive these debts. Uh, this is something that they don't really tell you about. But uh, the Germans thought this was completely unfair and never wanted to pay. Uh, most people don't realize this, but uh, debt to GDP ratio is um, something that is widely known around the macroeconomic space, especially in the trading um, models and, and, and expectations from, from analysts. So most countries around the world rely on sovereign debt to finance their government and economy. When this debt is used in moderation, it can position an economy to grow more quickly. This is much like using debt to finance a business. Now, the debt to GDP ratio is a financial measurement for a country similar to a business debt to equity ratio. Both ratios are designed to help interested parties determine if a country has too much debt. It is a measurement of financial health. And there is no set ideal ratio for a country to have to indicate its financial health. However, when the ratio is used with other information, it can help you develop a working concept of a country's health. This can help you decide whether a country's economy is worth investing in. So if we, I'm going to put a chart here in the show notes, but if you look here at the government debt to GDP in the United States, now it's, uh, it's expected to eclipse 120% this year. 
So you might think, well, is that a good or bad car? Well, kind of put it in perspective, uh, the U.S.'s highest debt to GDP ratio was 121.7% at the end of World War II in 1946. Now, debt levels gradually fell from their post-World War II peak before plateauing between 31 and 40% in the 1970s, ultimately hitting a historic 31.7% low in 1974. Now, ratios have steadily risen since 1980 and then jumped sharply following 2007's subprime housing crisis and, of course, the financial meltdown. So if you look if you look at something like where we're at today, we're expected to be at 120 percent by the end of this year. And I'm not I'm not entirely sure if this was um, before or after. Uh, I'm not sure if this chart was created before or after um, the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's something to consider as well, too. Now, one of the consequences of World War I was massive inflation. Now, this is not surprising, right? And this was caused by hyperinflation in the early 1920s. During that time, central bankers spent most of the mid to late 1920s trying to save the British pound from collapsing. <laughs> sound, sound, sound familiar? They actually went back to the gold standard because they thought it was the cure for hyperinflation. Now, when I started diving into this, I quickly realized like, Wow. So we actually had something because this is something I didn't know. Like we actually had something very similar to what we're experiencing now. And a lot of people were saying we need to go back to gold and you hear a bunch of, uh, you know, gold bugs say we need to get back to gold. But they actually did that. They actually had a recession uh, after World War One. They went back to gold, but it wasn't the cure for hyperinflation. They were actually they were wrong. So the world suffered from the shortage of gold in the 1920s. Now, this was because the vast majority of the gold, or actually I should say two-thirds of the gold, was with the United States uh, because of capital flights and payments and all that sort of stuff, right? So uh, the, the reason it didn't work was because the, the majority of the gold was with the United States. So it's kind of like being a, a poker player, <laughs> right, at a table, and you're trying to bet, but you have the biggest stack, and everybody's coming in with their, you know, small little stacks, well, it doesn't really make for a global economy. Now, the main problem was Britain went back to the old exchange rate uh, for gold and British pound, which caused the British pound to be overvalued. Now, think about that. That's crazy, right? So in 1927, the central banks got together to discuss a way out of the mess they created. What do you think they did? Well, they decided to lower interest rates for European countries to pay back the debt at a lower cost. It was in July 1927, which also happens to be the start of the stock market bubble. Now, within three months of the stock market, it was up over 21% and it never looked back, right? And then it burst in October of 1929. And that occurred, uh, you know, what we, what we foresaw as the next Great Depression. Well, the one thing they do teach you in school was that afterwards, uh, you know, there was a run on the banks. And that's probably all I remember <laughs> from grade school about the Great Depression. Uh, now, the, a banking crisis started in 1931, and it was eerily quite the opposite of what we saw in 2020. Now, you, if you remember here recently, the Fed actually went on uh, Twitter and all social media sites and said, don't run. <laughs> There's money in the banks. Don't make a run for it. And it was quite the opposite of what we saw here, right? So with the Fed injecting liquidity to central banks and repo markets in 2019, this kind of helped us uh, in a, put us in a better position to maintain our way of life for the most part, 
you know. And eventually, through the 1930s, Britain, Italy, and Germany all defaulted on its war debts, going off the gold standard, which then started the recovery. But it makes you wonder, like, this ideology of the gold standard is that somehow if everyone uses gold, everything is resolved. But the historical data shows that when that actually happens, people just simply hoard it or stop spending money in the economy. Therefore, there's no economic progress. Then all you have is just piles of gold in the world and nothing to show for it. This research definitely got me thinking about Bitcoin and gold and, and that kind of store value a little bit different now. Yeah, it's completely fascinating. Okay, so let's get into where we are now. Because we've covered the Great Depression of 1929 into the 30s, what that looked like, how it got there, right? Now let's look at where we're at today with everything that's going on here in 2020 and the pressure that we're in right now, even though they don't want to call it that, <laughs> all the numbers suspect that this is what that is. And I think the biggest thing that you see the difference in these two, you know, times is the lack of empathy uh, in, in this time, I think. Uh, as opposed to the 1920s, 1930s. There's more concern for the people back then. Let's jump into Act Two. Everything I present for Act 2 is all driven by factual information. There's no hidden conspiracy theory. There's no tinfoil hat kind of mantra. It's literally looking at the facts, looking at Reuters, uh, looking at the Financial Times, and just reporting it as it is. That's all I can do. Um, I'll give you my opinion on everything in the third act, but... Let's, let's just report what's going on. Now, most people won't tell you this, but if you go to Investopedia, one of the biggest websites when it comes to investing, you learn all sorts of things. There's a slow and steady transition to China. Um, of the 173 countries outside the top 20, uh, they make up less than a fourth of the total global economy. So we need to think of it like that. The United States currently has 23.6%. You look at something like the United Kingdom, 3.3%. Germany, 4.6%. Japan, 5.7%. Um, you look at something like China. Now, China has 15.5%. Now, this is according to Investopedia. And currently right now, if you look at the U.S. nominal GDP, it's $21.44 
Now, the U.S. has retained its position of being the world's largest economy since 1871, but the size of the U.S. economy was at $20.58 trillion in 2018. It has grown, and there's an expected um, anticipation that it will reach $22.3 trillion in 2020, but again, I don't know if this was taken before or after COVID-19 pandemic. Now, the U.S. is often dubbed as an economic superpower, and that's because the economy constitutes almost a quarter of the global economy, backed by advanced infrastructure, technology, and an abundance of natural resources, and of course, the military-industrial complex. Now, if you look at something like China, China has $14.14 trillion. China has experienced exponential growth over the past few decades, breaking the barriers of a centrally planned closed economy to evolve into a manufacturing and exporting hub of the world. China is often referred to as the world's factory, right? Given its huge manufacturing and export base. However, over the years, the role of services has gradually increased and that of manufacturing as a contributor to GDP has declined relatively. Now, back in 1980, China was the seventh largest economy. And it was they were still in the billions, right? 300 billion. <laughs> they were close to the <laughs> to the coin market cap. Now, while the size of the United States then was 2.86 trillion, we have to look at market reforms since 1978 because the Asian powerhouse has seen economic growth averaging 10% annually. Now, in recent years, the pace of growth has slowed, although it remains high in comparison to its peer nations. Now, the IMF projects a growth of 5.8% in 2020. Like I said, not sure if this is before or after COVID-19 pandemic, which would sober down to around 5.6 by 2023. Over the years, the difference in the size of Chinese and the U.S. economy has been shrinking rapidly. And of course, there's so much going on with trade wars, digital yuan. We're in a really critical time in history. Uh, there's really no other way to put that. Uh, there's people in the know, and then there's people who have to go search for the truth. Unfortunately, we're having to search for the truth, right? We're having to read uh, these facts and interpret them, and whether they're cru they're crucial to what's going on right now or crucial to the future ahead of us. So let me tell you about a boiling frog. Now, you probably have heard this fable before, describing a frog being slowly boiled alive, right? The premise is that if a frog is put suddenly into boiling water, it will jump out. But if the frog is put in tepid water, which is then brought to a boil slowly, it will not perceive the danger and will be cooked to death. Now, the story is, of course, a metaphor for the inability or unwillingness of people to react to or be aware of threats that arise gradually rather than suddenly. Now, during the 2007-2009 recession, the U.S. real GDP fell about $650 billion or 4.3%. And it did not recover its 15 trillion pre-recession level for three years. That's right, it took three years. Now that recession didn't have the psychological impacts unique to today's current pandemic, but it can kind of give us some insight into what we should expect as far as the amount of years it will take to recover from this. Now, former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen recently said some startling things. On April 6, 2020, Yellen told CNBC's Sarah Eisen on Squawk that the Fed is far more restricted than most other central banks. So what that means is so far so good. That's why the U.S. has had one of the least bad paper currencies. <laughs> 
it's only lost 90% of its purchasing power since 1950. Most paper currencies have fared much worse. It would be a substantial change to give the Federal Reserve the ability to buy stock. I frankly don't think it's necessary at this point. I think intervention to support the credit markets is more important. But longer term, it wouldn't be a bad thing for Congress to reconsider the powers that the Fed has with respect to assets it can own. What is going on here, ladies and gentlemen? This is a former Federal Reserve chair saying this. So I'm going to play something even more alarming. And this is coming from Alan Greenspan. And his discussion with Laquette Ahmed about the recent crash here during Wall Street on March 12th shows that the vast majority of the Fed think and willingly believe they don't have a problem until inflation comes. Take a listen to what they say. But you were talking earlier about uh, 1990 and the financial crisis in 2008. I think we spent, what, over $1.5 trillion. Right. Now, that was a very different circumstance, different situation. But this is hitting a lot of people in a very short time. So $8.2 billion doesn't go very far. No. So no. what do you think on the fiscal side will happen? Will it happen also in time to help or hinder the election in one way or another? Uh, you know, I think the, the recession probably started yesterday. So, uh, you know, I, I would be... Central, uh, Central Standard Time. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, it's probably not going to solve the, the problem of the recession. Is, and we're going to have automatic stabilizers kick in, so the deficit's going to go up. Will, will it get us out of the recession? You know, I don't know. I don't know whether they'll, they'll feel compelled, uh, particularly given the political divisions and given that we're going into an election year. It's hard for me to How see. About the Federal Reserve? Oh, no, just the, the Congress. Sorry, oh, sorry, the Congress. Will, 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 the two sides get, will... will we get a stimulus package? And how large will it be? And, you know, I, I just don't think the sort of level of cooperation to get a stimulus package through will exist. But I don't think we actually need a, we don't need the sort of package that we had in 2008, because then right. we needed to stabilize the banking system. And I don't think we're having a run on the banking system. In fact, I think banks are in reasonable shape. The politics are changing, and uh, I think uh, the inexorable. I mean, well, just take a look at the budgets. The entitlements are growing faster than the economy. Why? Because people are looking for ways in the Congress, for example, of buying votes. Is the simplest way is what do you do? You get a bill on the House or the Senate and you get it passed. Why? Because rising deficits don't matter until they trigger inflation. Rising deficits 
have a very considerable attraction to a congressperson or a senator <coughs> because it's no cost, seemingly. And indeed, if there's no inflation coming from it, there is no cost to the economy, apparently. Well, uh, good luck for us. We'd go, we have had a very protracted period of very low, stable interest rates uh, with very large government deficits. History suggests that does not go on without difference. But I think, I, I take your point that the one thing that no one expects and the thing that would totally surprise everyone is if we had some sort of resurgence of inflation. Mm -hmm. you, and, you know, you could sort of see, probably not in a recession, but as we came out, productivity growth is terrible. I saw one statistic, productivity growth in Britain has been lower than the lowest level since the Industrial Revolution. That I mean, is, I mean, it's yeah, astounding. Yeah. You know, sort of, you basically have to go to the 1780s to, to see this level of, um, uh, of productivity growth. So, you know, I cannot imagine that that doesn't eventually lead to some sort of cost pressures and in inflation, particularly when wages are beginning to rise at 4% and um, and you've got such low productivity growth. So, and I would think that is going to be a major problem for the stock market in the long run. Now, look at uh, Alan's number. I think if I remember correctly, Ireland looked very healthy in there, right? Oh, yeah. Ireland <laughs> is one of the... That's because they got a phony... Uh, I mean, you know, we don't we don't have output per hour anymore. Right. But we have output per person. Per, per person. Yeah. I mean, these are sort of astoundingly low numbers across the board. Right. Any surprises? And the reason is that there is no no yet. We haven't seen inflation yet. When we see inflation, then everyone will get. To, uh, or shall we say, a move in a different direction politically. So what is impressive here is China is 6.7%. Right. So it's obvious to me, according to Alan Greenspan, that inflation can't happen until it happens. It's troubling to hear him say that because he's, I think he's close to his 80s or 90s at this point. It's really troubling to hear him say that so casually. And when they briefly laughed in the beginning, uh, it struck a nerve. Now, Preston Sai is an investing finance, a Bitcoin guy. He's the co-founder of the Investors Podcast Network. He really dropped some interesting takes on Twitter. Uh, but I think he hits it out of the park better than anybody I've heard say what's going on right now. So I'm going to read you his thread and I'll put that in the show notes because this is exactly what's going on right now. And it's one of those things where most people understand what's going on, but it's just hard to, to put into words uh, or it's hard to um, 
uh, verbally express it. So this is what he says. Central banks are aggressively inflating the fiat monetary base. Since 2008, the U.S. Federal Reserve has expanded their balance sheet from $800 billion to $7.1 trillion. That means they have inflated that fiat monetary base supply of currency by 21.9% annually over that 11-year period of time. Well, then why haven't we seen CPI inflation? He says, easy, because they are buying financial assets with that freshly printed money. Bonds are purchased off the open market and freshly printed cash is supplied into the free and open economy. The problem with this is the money goes straight into the hands of the people holding the assets and only a trickle comes down into the lower income sections of the economy where a majority of the population, percentage wise, exists as the wealthy portion of the population continues to benefit from this process of inserting freshly printed cash into the system, their net worth continues to skyrocket and grow and they get first access to allocate the capital to even more advantageous assets that make even more money. This is not free. This is not open. This is manipulated. You won't find CPI inflation because the freshly printed money is nesting itself into financial assets by bidding the market capitalization higher and higher. Now he switches gears into deflation. So check this out. When an economy's money supply becomes manipulated in an inflationary manner, it incentivizes aggressive investment. This is because if the cash is simply held, its value will continue to debase over time. But if that fiat is invested, it can potentially outpace the debasement. When years and decades of deeply manipulated inflationary fiat money expansion has occurred, it actually creates deflationary prices for some goods and services. Remember the newly printed money is bidding asset prices. This means the gap between wealthy and poor will expand. If a majority of the population can't afford goods and services because the percentage of poor are becoming larger every day, then the demand for goods and services go down. If demand for goods and services go down, the price must follow it. Now he says the opposite is true for goods and services that are absolute essentials to life. Healthcare, food, education. So we are seeing price deflation of non-essential goods and services. We are seeing price inflation of essential goods and services. We are seeing hyperish inflation of bonds and stocks due to the government unapologetically manipulating those markets. Why is the Fed doing this? Well, they have to, right? The money they are printing and inserting into the system is not getting to the masses. This is why the velocity of money continues to decline in the, in the system. That's why the government is now doing direct deposits to citizens. It's got the fancy name Universal Basic Income. But don't let that name fool you. They are out of options. They must get cash into the hands of the citizens or else further civil unrest will continue to spiral out of control. 
A majority of people don't have enough money to even pay for basic needs anymore. Long-term UBI has its problems just like QE has. But make no mistake about it. The engine is out of the oil. They have to print and they have to get the money into the general population where it's needed most. All of this is why I own Bitcoin. Everything that's being done in a short-term fix to an unstoppable spiral of fiat printing doom, the people peacefully protesting on the streets have every right to be disgusted by the first-degree murder of George Floyd. But I think it's even bigger and deeper than that. I think the African-American community, which I love dearly, are outraged because the financial system also feels rigged. And based on everything I wrote above, it is. That's what he said. It was really powerful. And to be honest, it's right on with everything that we talk about here on Through the Crypto. So now we're going to jump into Raul Paul. He's going to explain these different phases of what's going on right now. He has a really great pulse on the global economy, on the Fed. He's a Bitcoin guy. He's a gold guy. And he really understands the mechanics of it all. So take a listen. There's three phases, I think, of how this plays out. Now, first caveat is I can be spectacularly wrong, even though I've been really quite right for a while now. That does not mean that that's going to hold true. But my, my thought process is we had the liquidation event to start with. That was the panic. The financial system froze up. The Fed needs to inject liquidity. All the central banks around the world. Oh, my God, our banking system won't function. Money markets won't function. And we need to help all the people who've lost income. Phase one. Phase two is the hope. Oh, we've, all, we've given money to people who need income. We've injected the liquidity. And, and, we're probably, and the rate of um, virus expansion is now falling. And we should get more mobility. And that's going to be a rebound. That's the hope phase. I think we're pretty much completing that as we speak. Mm. The question is, is what is the next phase? We either return to normal in some slow way, which the market is pretty much priced. Or I think that when you have a huge amount of outstanding debt and reduced cash flow, I don't think growth goes back to normal. So just a reduction in cash flow. So we're not talking about negative 10% GDP, but just like a negative 2 or 3% recession numbers. After just eviscerating everybody's cash in the last three months, there's no cash left. Mm-hmm. Government's been trying to paper over the cracks for everybody, but corporations too. Uh, there's no cash. So you're going to start having lower cash than is needed to service debts. And that's called a debt deflation. Mm. That comes along hand in hand with deflation in prices, which we're seeing everywhere. The forward looking CPI looks like around the world it should go to negative two, negative three percent. Well, with rates at zero, what do the central banks do? You know, everybody's in the same boat, not just the Fed. Well, what that means is real rates go up. So you're tightening interest rates in the middle of a recession. That's what it does. It means it's harder to pay your debts back. Mm-hmm. Because basically you're getting less income, which is what deflation really means to you. So if that's the case, then the chances of a massive insolvency event go up. And I fear the insolvency event. I think people don't understand the difference between liquidity and insolvency. Mm-hmm. Liquidity is, is 
right, I'm not going to do anything until you give me some cash to allow me to just lend it to that guy and, and do that stuff. Because if not, I don't know what's going on. That's liquidity. That's what 2008 was all about. Right. Solvency event, you know, Canadians will understand this because you'll have seen it in the, in, the, uh, in the mining industry. The mining industry goes through solvency events every 20 years. Mm-hmm. And half the people go out of business. And then, you know, you restructure the whole space and move forward. That's solvency. Right, and the reason that happens in mining is because mining is cyclical, and what and prices are too low for people to have cash flow to service debts. Right, it's very common. Most people don't understand that in the economy; they just don't believe that that happens any longer. But it does, and it's going to happen to companies like General Electric, Ford, you know, even potentially AT and T, who's the world's largest borrower. So there's some huge, huge issues, and I think this is what we this is what plays out over the next eighteen months. So what's interesting about what he just said right there is a solvency problem, right? And he's correlating that to different corporations, uh, different uh, companies across the United States that are going to have this issue. So for anybody that doesn't understand how a solvency problem works, uh, can function, right? Or can't function. So it's when an entity's debt is larger than their equity. Uh, let's say so-and-so has a solvency problem with its liabilities and equity are greater than its assets. A solvency problem is basically when they're not making profit. Uh, it's just a propped up asset. Raul Powell is suggesting that most of these companies might have a solvency problem here in the short term. And you're probably wondering like why that is, Car. Like why are they having a solvency problem? Well, you don't have to look any further than BlackRock. Now remember how this Thriller Insider is called How the Fed Exit Scammed America? Well, BlackRock is assisting with that exit scam. Now, I tweeted yesterday about how this podcast is in a very special position as far as Bitcoin or crypto podcasts that you otherwise would hear uh, out there. We don't have any ads. We're not beholden to anybody. I'm not in the financial system, right? I'm not affiliated with any Bitcoin or crypto company. Uh, I work in IT. (laughs) So everything that I have to do, uh, as far as research-wise, has to be done on my own time. So I'm in a perfect position to talk about something like this because not everybody can cover it. Um, There was only one person that spoke out against BlackRock about this. And I feel like it's my patriotic duty to share what's going on because... Um, this is, this is just all types of wrong. Um, so let's dive into it. Now, BlackRock has been issued a $7 trillion, uh, I would say <laughs> cash flow buffet <laughs> from the Federal Reserve. Now, These funds were supposed to be used for U.S. companies, but BlackRock, as you know, is a a worldwide uh, global asset manager, right? And they are a large shareholder uh, of a lot of companies. Now, the Federal Reserve asked them for help with parts of its multi-trillion dollar coronavirus rescue package back in March. Now, the U.S. Central Bank handed BlackRock's Financial Markets Advisory Unit to bail out and mandate without a competitive process. Basically, 
no one else had the opportunity like Vanguard, like Fidelity, uh, like uh, any one of these other companies, uh, asset management companies, to compete for that bid. So that leads a lot of people wondering, why did BlackRock get the okay? Was it because they also audit the Fed? Uh, is it because they also, um, in 2008, got leaned on previously before? Or is it because there is a conflict of interest with uh, Mitch McConnell and his wife, Elaine Chow, very much benefiting from the Fed handling trillions to BlackRock? Now, this is astounding to me how they're able to get away with this. It's, it's, uh... Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's <laughs> there's there's gonna be history books about about this uh, in the future. Uh, I, I know that for certain. Um, so there's one person who's speaking out against this. Literally one person. She is Martha McSally. Uh, she's a senator. She's a Republican. Um, she says a lot of things in this interview that I don't agree with. <laughs> so take that in consideration. But the part that I do agree with is when she talks about BlackRock and why the Fed just gave him trillions of dollars with no oversight. Take a listen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Chairman Powell, Secretary Mnuchin, good to see you virtually. Um, as you know, this is why we're here today. We're talking about the economy, which was very strong. Uh, now really struggling. People all over Arizona are really struggling because of the calamity that's come from this virus. Uh, so I want to, uh, I don't think anybody, I should say, actually, let me just ask. I don't think either of you think there's any reason that we should be rewarding China or China, Chinese state-owned enterprises or individuals or entities that want China to prosper as we implement these massive initiatives to support the American economy. Is it fair to say neither of you want that to happen? That's correct. Chairman Powell. Senator McSally, that's that's really not a question for me. You know, we're, I, we're at the economic response to this. I know, but none of us as Americans want to see, you know, China or Chinese owned enterprises prospering. So I want to talk about a company called BlackRock. Uh, on March 24th, um, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York retained BlackRock as the financial agent to operationalize uh, uh, and transact with primary dealers in the primary market corporate credit facility and the secondary market corporate credit facility. As you know, these facilities serve as uh, markets for companies to sell bonds and obtain loans during this situation, this downturn. Um, typically, there's a, 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 a competition, a competitive bidding process, but BlackRock was uh, selected for this one. As you probably know, BlackRock is one of the leading investment banks in Chinese funds, including helping Chinese companies list and go public on American stock exchanges. Chinese company, companies listed on American exchanges are prohibited or prohibit the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board or the PCAOB from reviewing their audit reports. On BlackRock's website, they have a page titled Five Myths and Realities About Investing in China. Uh, according to BlackRock, one of the biggest myths about China is that Chinese state-owned enterprises don't control their economy. BlackRock even tries to back that up with data. I won't go into all of it, but it's ridiculous. BlackRock's ode to China doesn't mention anything about human rights abuses, military responses to the Hong Kong uh, democracy protests, or even that the country is ruled by a communist party. Ironic that one of the world's largest investment banks and allegedly a staple of free markets neglects to mention the fact that communists actually run China. And all while refusing to invest 
in a number of legitimate and legal industries here in America, but that's a separate issue. Uh, so my question is, how and why did BlackRock get selected as a financial agent for these facilities? How much money do they stand to make as the agent? And what, if anything, will prevent BlackRock from taking their profits that they earn to invest in their interest in China and Chinese state-owned enterprises? So I guess I'll take that. Um, we hired BlackRock uh, for their expertise in these markets. They're actually an asset manager. They, they are a very large asset manager, which is active in, in, the, in the markets that we're concerned with, with the primary market and secondary market credit facilities. Uh, it was uh, done very quickly due to the urgency and the need for their expertise. Uh, we will rebid the contract as uh, as we in practice do uh, going forward. Yeah. And um, so that's where that is. The fees are a matter of public record and we'll be happy to supply those to you. But what, if anything, can we do to prevent any of their profits from this to actually benefiting China and Chinese state-owned companies, which they're severely invested in? We're, I would just say this, all large asset managers buy Chinese securities. These are global asset managers. It's in no way, you know, I, I, I'm not here to defend or, or criticize them for that. It's just, it's not really relevant to the work we want them to do. We're trying to, what we're trying to do is create conditions in which U.S. workers can keep their jobs or return to them. And that's what our sole focus is. We're not trying to reach out for other public policy objectives or deviate from that. We have a really a laser focus on that. And we, we concluded that this company was the right one to be our fiscal agent in this place. Their views on anything else are, are really not important. What's important is that we do everything we can to support the United States. Well, let me just say it's important to all of us, and thank you for all your leadership on this, to support our economy, to support jobs, to get our economy back on track. But it's also important that we wake up as Americans and that we hold China accountable and that they don't, they're not allowed to profit because of these investments taxpayers are made. So I'm going to follow up with you on these issues. I, I really think BlackRock and others need to also wake up and do their patriotic duty, see what's going on here. China, communist China should not be profiting off of unleashing this calamity on the world. And that should be something that should unite all Americans, even if they work at BlackRock. So as you can tell, there's a lot to digest there. So I'm strictly going to stick to what uh, Federal Chairman Powell said. Now, China knows that Wall Street is the gateway to America's central nervous system. Finance controls capital. Wall Street is the conduit of highly valuable information about all sectors of the economy. It has privileged access in the corridors of power in Washington, D.C., and Wall Street can buy it all because it has with Goldman Sachs entering our Treasury Department <laughs> All sorts of institutions, unfortunately. BlackRock's emerging markets ETFs hold about 300 million. Now, this was back in 2018, a small fraction of 7.4 trillion in assets under management that it held last year in 2018. Now, this company, BlackRock, is indeed identified as China Partner. Uh, their expertise and judgment in creating portfolios can deliver these Chinese markets to its shareholders, to you, if you want it to. There's no secret that BlackRock has identified China as a large and fast-growing market. As we said earlier here in Act 2, that they are growing. And there is a slow migration to move liquidity and inflate assets 
in China. Now, Powell said something interesting. Which is active in, in, the, in the markets that we're concerned with, with the primary market and secondary market credit facilities. Why is he concerned with China's markets? Well, it's because he knows that's where growth is going to happen, right? That's where they're going to see the increased amount of return from the amount of money they just handed over to BlackRock. So it's kind of shooting yourself in the foot uh, to save your toe, <laughs> right? Um, it's, it's ass backwards in plain speak. Now take a listen to what else Pal said. I would just say this, all large asset managers buy Chinese securities. These are global asset managers. It's in no way, you know, I, I, I'm not here to defend or, or criticize them for that. It's just, it's not really relevant to the work we want them to do. They buy Chinese securities from BlackRock. Seriously. They buy Chinese securities from BlackRock. What are you, what are you talking about there? This is painfully, painfully troubling news. Troubling news. What is going on here? Now, I did a little digging. And of course, that whole administration is all tied up. Uh, they say one thing on TV. They're doing another thing with their money behind the scenes. Uh, I, I'm not going to go into that because I think it's a whole nother episode uh, and it gets way too political to jump into. But uh, I'll give you the short version that there's uh, quite a few people um, with a strong conflict of interest uh, uh, benefiting uh, with the Fed handing trillions to BlackRock uh, in that administration right now. So it's uh, this is like I said, this is going to be one of those history defining moments. There's going to be people writing books about this, how the Fed handed the keys to the castle to BlackRock and BlackRock handed it over to China. And we started slowly migrating uh, from one superpower to the next. Uh, this is how the world changes. Now, let's get into Act 3. talk about what the future holds for Bitcoin. Bitcoin to me still stands as the people's money, the people's store value. The future is bright for Bitcoin because there is a digital asset world being built out there on decentralized systems for the future of humanity and the global economy 
where we can function as one and level the fucking playing field. Holding and buying Bitcoin is the only thing, according to the research done today, that is going to keep us solvent. And I'm not the only person that says this. There is way smarter people out there talking about this, expressing this. Take a listen to Raul Paul. He goes on Cambridge House and has a discussion about this very same thing. Where do you put your money? You leave it in cash? Put it in gold? Do they have 100x possibilities in their near future? I don't think so. But does Bitcoin have those possibilities in the near future? I think they do. Take a listen. And that's how I see it. See, everybody else says the Fed of printing money, rates are at zero, maybe they go negative, therefore the dollar collapses. It doesn't work that way. Currency world is a relative world and there's a supply and demand issue. And we live in a world that is defined by the dollar standard. I don't think any single currency has dominated the world as this has in the last four or 500 years. So this currency, the dollar, is 70% of all trade around the world, of mm. all currency transactions. Now the problem is, is the US discovered shale. So they stopped buying oil from others, or as much oil. Mm. They started reducing the trade deficit, just at a time when foreigners had borrowed record amounts of dollars. And then the US started trade wars, which puts less dollars in the system. And then that created a slowdown in global trade, which meant that the price of commodities fell and the price of oil fell, and that put less dollars in the system. So basically, all of these dollar borrowers are playing a game of musical chairs. And every day, somebody takes a new chair away. Right. And the weakest creditor has to give up. Or they have to pay up for those dollars. Now, now could this not, in a way, be self-defeating for the U.S.? They've lent out, I mean, $12 trillion of of the, the countries, foreign countries are short U.S. dollars. Simultaneously, the U.S. is cutting off U.S. dollar cash flow to a lot of these countries that have borrowed. That compromises the uh, the lender, no? At what point has it become a U.S. problem? This money's been lent out and just... Well, interesting enough, it's not the U.S. that's lent it to them. So this is the magic of the euro-dollar market. Now, don't confuse this with euro-dollar, the exchange rate. This is the Eurodollar interest rate futures, uh, the interest rate markets, which are the offshore dollar lending markets. So a bank like Deutsche Bank or HSBC or UBS or credit can create dollars uh, in the system by the Eurodollar markets. And it's that is the problem. So it ends up on these, these banks' balance sheets. That's where the lending issue lies. Now, they may repackage it and sell it to insurance companies or pension companies. Sure. It's not clear. But it's the, it's the foreign banks and their counterparts with the corporations. Now, the issue is, is the Fed issues swap lines to many of these countries. That's okay. So you give it to Europe. Europeans take the swap lines, which is basically a short-term loan, mm-hmm. and they lend it to their banks. The bank's like, thank God for that. I couldn't get any dollars. 
we needed that. But just the, the fact that they go, thank you, means they're not going to lend it to you. <laughs> mm. They will only lend to their best creditor because they need the money as well. So what happens is the marginal creditor starts falling by the wayside and that whole mechanism feeds on itself. And this is essentially the beginning of what you've called the biggest insolvency in recorded history. Yeah, I think, look, the potential is there. Um, and again, you know, I don't deal in certainties, but I think this is a high probability event and the high probability event for such an enormous call. I'm talking about, you know, a 60% chance of this happening. So it's, it, it, it's my favored probability that we're going to go into a big solvency event. Hmm. How that plays out, that we don't know yet. Got it. So how, how are you positioned then, Raul? If this is in your periphery on the horizon, what's, what does your portfolio look like right now? So at top-down macro level, my personal portfolio is 25% gold, 25% Bitcoin, 25% cash in the bank, and 25% trading opportunities. And is that cash US dollars? Yeah. It is. You're 25% gold, 25% Bitcoin, 25% cash. Yeah. And then within my trading opportunities, most of my bets are long bonds, long US dollars, and long gold miners, stuff like that. So it, it's very concentrated in these kind of themes. I'm not short equities yet, but I'm looking to start shorting the big indebted uh, US companies, uh, right. General Electrics and the AT&Ts and that kind of stuff. Okay, now why, why such a massive bet on Bitcoin? Because, and again, that's my liquid, you know, available investment money, right? So that's not total net worth because 25% total net worth is a lot unless you happen to be very early and you've kept it all the way through then some people end up with huge numbers like that um, it, Bitcoin it's very simple the dollar standard is going to break the system the dollar has eaten every, all of its competitors and now it's going to eat itself by going up too high there's almost no way of stopping it and all the central banks have talked about it they know it and they know that they want to move to digital currencies and create a new way of moving cur currency around the system. It doesn't necessarily just involve the US at the center of it, the infrastructure at the center of it, and all the current market dynamics and structures that we have. There's a number of other things you can do when you move to that, is you can create these very efficient digital baskets. So like Libra, which is the Facebook idea. Um, but anyway, we are moving towards a digital currency world. Bitcoin acts like the gold, the collateral, the personal reserve asset that everybody needs. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the truth in the digital world, while gold is the truth in the currency world. Doesn't necessarily make Bitcoin a currency, but it makes us extraordinarily valuable store of value. And also as that entire space grows, as we move into decentralized finance, we move into tokenization, we move into the, um, the full digital realm, internet 3.0, well, the poster child, for at least for a while, is going to be Bitcoin. It can be Ethereum, it can be a bunch of other stuff as well, but really, it's that. And if I look at the chart, or we start with the chart, the chart looks like it's going to a million bucks. <laughs> and I just can't see it any other way. Now, how long does that take? Probably five years. Find me a single other asset that's going to give you 100x asset. Well, share price, not a, you know, a junior miner that's, you know, just that nobody, find me an asset, an entire asset class that could be 100x. There isn't one. 
Mm. That's why the magnitude of opportunity with Bitcoin is like nothing I've ever seen before. And it's also that whole kind of vortex of people getting into this. They start with understanding a little bit. Then they don't trust it. Then they question themselves. Then they don't know. Then they start to learn. And once you learn, you realize the more and more and more you learn about it and the ecosystem, that it's basically blown your entire mind. Um, and everyone becomes a complete groupie to it. And I've seen the greatest macro minds in the world, with the latest one being Paul Tudor Jones, who've gone, I get it. Hmm. The opportunity is bigger than anything else in the world. But let's go at a simple level. We are going to move to a different financial system. We have to. That is commensurate with the modern age of the internet. We cannot pass money around. It takes me four days to get from Cayman to Canada. You know, all of this stupid stuff that goes on, when I can do it literally in a few seconds. Mm -hmm. We're living with legacy systems in terms of lending, who owes what to whom, custody, trust, all of these things that are going to change. Bitcoin is basically the share price of that. Sure. Um, and it also has a tremendous store of value. So while the world is basically debasing fiat currency, Bitcoin, on the other hand, is hardening its currency because the algorithm, every few years, reduces the supply of Bitcoin, which is the absolute opposite of mm -hmm. all other asset classes. So it makes it extremely hard as an asset. And it's just about faith. And I think at, at $10,000 a Bitcoin and a market cap of 200 billion, we're pretty close to saying, okay, there's enough people that have faith and adoption in this. The next phase is where does it go from here? And speaking to many of the big family offices, investment funds, everybody else, basically the entire world is short the upside of this. If Bitcoin goes up to 20,000, the next skeptic's going to go, Christ, okay, I get it, I need to get in. If it goes up to 50,000, half the endowments, half the family offices, all right, we're going to have to get in. Because this is, the more it goes up in market cap terms, the more meaningful it is. Because it, it's not just a super spike that goes up and down, like tulip bubble, right? Mm. It comes over time a growing adoption. And what it is, it's a growing adoption to a new entire system. And five years is a very short timeline, in, in my view, for it that kind of a gain. What, what does that world look like? What has to happen? Bitcoin already is the best performing asset price in all record, best performing asset in all recorded history, right? So nothing has ever performed like this has. Okay. So it would be a slowdown, the rate of change of growth to say a million dollars in five years. Sure. Okay. Yeah. It'd be a slowdown. We did most, we did about the same gain in 2017 alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was wild. Yeah, we were running a, a tech conference in Toronto and it was anybody talking about Bitcoin, people were pulling down the drapes trying to get in the room, um, which to me was a big red flag, right? It, you know, when you see that kind of activity on an on a investment conference floor, you're like, okay, maybe we should pump the brakes here. Okay, now, so if, if this occurs and, and Bitcoin ends up, you know, a million dollars per Bitcoin in five years, what do our lives look like, Raul? Like what, what happens to the dollar in that scenario, the US dollar? US dollar is not going anywhere but it just has to be used less, right? I don't want to buy goods from China in dollars. So you're a Canadian, 
You buy goods from China in US dollars. Why? That doesn't make sense. What would actually be better? Because you've got all the currency fluctuations of a currency neither of you has control over. Mm. Right? That's just a pain. We've got this multi-trillion dollar per day trading market of currencies. It doesn't need to exist, really. So imagine if you could create a basket, a global basket of currencies, which was yuan, yen, um, Aussie, Canadian, pound, euro, Korean won, and US dollars. So let's say the US dollar now wasn't 70% of that basket, but was 40% of that basket. And you agree that you're going to use the digital currency basket one. Okay. And that is your reference price. Well, great. That makes a huge difference to everybody because the price doesn't go up and down because of currencies. What you're finding is the price of that currency fluctuates from global money supply or fiat currency printing or whatever format of understanding that you have for it. So it's much less volatile. Hmm. So it, it stops. That could stop a lot of the, the cyclical boom busts of emerging markets. Right. How does that impact the United States as the global powerhouse and, and their influence? I don't know. I mean, I can create two arguments for that. You could say, well, it's the, it's the end of the empire, or actually, if we can create a more stable world where debt, you know, the US has a propensity, being the reserve currency, to accumulate a lot of debts. Um, so maybe if things were on a blockchain and things had changed in how we did things, that we would have a more robust financial system. Maybe it allows for less leverage. So maybe that makes the dollar-based system last a lot longer, but just in a different format. So I don't really know. So mm. I'm not the guy who says, well, the dollar goes up, then it collapses, and uh, you know, all fiat currencies go to nothing. It's hyperinflation, and we all go to gold and Bitcoin. I don't believe in that at all. I believe that the dollar is a very, very big problem that needs to be solved, like the, the dollar was in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. We will move to something different, and that... The process of getting from here to there involves a lot of printing of money and a lot of things going wrong. And therefore, you know, the, the dual aspect of gold and Bitcoin at the same time actually works very well. So I'll put a link to the Bitcoin stock to flow model. Uh, and if you look at this model, and we have in the past, um, we're expected to hit $1 million per Bitcoin here in 2025, 2026. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Right. Uh, so far, if you look at this model, uh, past 10 years, it's pretty spot on, uh, you know, minus, you know, 10 to 12 months, something like that. So it's uh, it's going to be an interesting time. And there's really only a few different options that you can go. But for me, like, you know, Bitcoin is the right option because how this shakes out in 2021 uh, is going to be a really interesting time for crypto and Bitcoin because this is going to be the exact same time we're expected to see a bull run. But if the solvency crisis happens in that time frame as well, how does that affect that bull run? So there's still things I'm kind of grasping, uh, still things I'm still trying to put my finger on. It's very foggy. As we get closer, uh, everything starts making sense. Um, so there's just a lot of uh, wait and see, unfortunately, for now. But what we know is the exit scam is definitely real. Okay.
Yeah, so it was uh, really uh, interesting putting all this together because there's so much going on, so many pieces that you got to puzzle together, and it's just not playing, right? They're just not playing anymore. All this information is left out in the open, and they're just not hiding it. It's kind of like the Panama Papers. What are we doing here as a society where the people who steal from the poor and give to the rich are doing it in plain sight? I don't know if that's a world that we want to see succeed. So I stress and I'll stress again. Buying Bitcoin can potentially save the world. So make sure you share this with everybody and let them know that decentralization is coming to level the playing field.